Between 1948 and 1964, in what was then the Communist Eastern Bloc, the Romanian pastor Richard Wurmbrand was twice imprisoned for preaching about Jesus. He, he was subjected to horrific tortures, beating, enforced solitude, deprived of his Bible, deprived of human um, company, at one point imprisoned in an icebox, however that feels. And in his book, Alone with God, containing sermons and meditations from his time in prison, a book which, if you've never read it, it's a very powerful working out of faith and doubt amidst imprisonment and torture and horrific circumstance. (coughs) He says this, As tons of lead are shoveled and smelted in the hope of extracting one grain of radium, years of prison are not too much if one may have one day with Christ. His day comes slowly, but when it comes, it will compensate for years lost in the darkness of prison cells. Even though in communist prisons he went through very severe crises of faith, and who wouldn't, for him, in the end, the glory of the gospel was worth it. Paul has spent the first part of his epistle to the Ephesians, the first three chapters as we have them, expounding the glory of Christ's redemption of man, the glory of the uniting in Christ of Jew and Gentile, speaking in beautiful and inspired words of the depth of God's love. Now before continuing to bring his readers, his hearers, us, some application from all this, he pauses just for a second to remind them that he's a prisoner for the Lord. Like Richard Wurmbrand, Paul is gripped by the excitement and the worthiness of what he's describing. And so he takes a pause here just for a second to remind them of his chains, not from self-pity, but just because the gospel's worth it, worth his chains, worth their striving, our striving, for the qualities that he's about to describe. And because he's writing from the exampleship of a pattern of Christian life that is driven by conviction of truth, the truth that he's just described. And that as he goes on to expound to us in our passage, that truth produces a unity that's sustained and protected by the diversity of the ministries of God's people. As Paul then calls the Ephesians to live worthily, some translations use the words walking worthy, to exhibit gentleness, humbleness, unity. This is going to be set in a vitally important context. That the way we live not only reflects who God is, but that under sound Christian teaching, we're brought to a mature understanding of truth. And that our love and our service are to be rooted in the growing conviction of that truth. So when Paul, having reminded the Ephesians of his chains, calls them to walk worthy of their calling, it's in the context of everything that he's previously said. He wants to be gripped by the deep meaning of Christian salvation so that that can play out in who they are. So what does this living or walking worthy look like? 
What it plainly isn't is trying to be or to become worthy of salvation or favour through any act or merit of our own. Paul never ceases to remind us, does he, that we're saved by grace. In the next two verses, though, he does start to show us a bit of what this looks like. He calls us to live with humility, gentleness. Some translations use the word lowliness, a slightly older word. Long-suffering, bearing with each other in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We'll look a bit more at what some of that means in a moment. But firstly, what is this Christian lowliness or gentleness mean? Is it this? Or is it this, if I can get the clicker to work? Yep. Hopefully you will recognise the cowardly lion, but if you don't know who this gentleman is, he's Uriah Heep, Dickensian creation, um, a very humble exterior beneath which beat a very dark, vengeful, bitter spirit. Clearly, it's none of these things. There's a root Greek word to this that I'm not going to try and say because it's longer than my hallway, but it means (laughs) modesty, lowliness, humble-mindedness, unselfish concern. It's an absence of arrogance, conceit, haughtiness. And as we think maybe for just a second about how these qualities meet and challenge us wherever we're at. It's the Bible that brings this word into a more common Greek usage than it was before. Um, It's less well known elsewhere in Greek writing. What Paul is asking of this deeply proud Ephesian people is for them, and perhaps for our age too, deeply countercultural against the grain. Alexander the Great, in his day, was one of the greatest conquerors that the world had ever seen. But one night, in a drunken brawl, he fought his best friend and killed him. He'd conquered the known world, but not his anger, not his passion, not his temper, not himself. So when Paul talks about these qualities of humility, gentleness, when Jesus says, Blessed are the meek. The suggestion isn't the cowardly lion, is it? It's strength under control. The strength that, when it really mattered, Alexander the Great didn't have. The temperance of nature that's a fruit of the Spirit. Long-suffering and bearing with also carry with them a sense of endurance, tolerance, also having a courage under pressure when we need to, when we have to make difficult moral or godly choices. And so it's more than just patience with each other, important as that sometimes has to be. Because as Paul reminds us from prison, it's worth it not just for the eternal truth that we've been given, but also because these qualities help to foster a unity that's attractive to others and thus makes the gospel attractive. Let's be thankful to God, shall we, that the unity and care in our church here in Holy Trinity has been noticed and commended by others. The unity of the Spirit pointed to here is a unity not only of the Spirit's love, 
but also its truth. The way that the Spirit seals us in the assurance of all that God has done, helps us understand his truth, partners with us in prayer, and it's that truth that Paul wants the church's reflection of Christ's qualities to draw people to. And what's the bond of peace here? It's the peace that Christ's victory on the cross has won for each of us. The peace and pardon that God has extended to all of us to hold out, to hold fast to, to be drawn together by, to hold out to others. Recently, when many of our major institutions, including Parliament, were dealing with various harassment allegations, the Liberal Democrat MP, Chris Renard, was threatened with expulsion from his party for allegations which were, in the end, under one of very many investigations that were going on in many institutions at that time, not proven either way. But in considering uh, whether or not he should at least offer an apology for any behaviour which may have been upsetting or open to misinterpretation, the party peer, David Howarth, commented that the party was brought into disrepute when an MP or peer acted in a way that was fundamentally incompatible with its aims or values. In other words, he felt that Chris Renard hadn't quite lived or walked worthy but Paul wants to show us how to do better. And so, having said this, he goes on to talk about the grace given to each of us and quotes the Psalms to give us this quite striking image of the risen and ascended Christ giving gifts to men. There's a whole host of shades of meaning in this that commentators point to, from salvation itself to all of God's many blessings to us in our day-to-day lives. But in the context of this passage, we can see here the body of Christ being nourished by growth in the knowledge of truth so that members are able to use their God-given skills and abilities and flourish in them. And it's of huge importance to Paul here that this maturity is linked to the growth and deepening of our faith convictions. Knowing what we believe, not being pulled about by winds of doctrine and deceptive mindsets matters hugely for the church's ability to grow, serve and evangelise. Then, as now, The church had harmful heresies to deal with and we can see other false mindsets all around us, can't we? Lies that life is just an accident, ultimately only has the meaning we give it, choose the morality you want. Lies that the resurrection of Christ, did it happen, is it figurative? Lies that the gospel is just one path among many and that all roads lead to God's truth in the end. Because When people are looking for truth, it's not just unity that makes the church attractive. In the face of all these falsehoods that are all around us, it's also conviction. In 2016, the Guardian newspaper quoted a Canadian academic study called Theology Matters, which examined church-going patterns and drew some conclusions that churches that grew as opposed to declined had some fundamental truths that they held fast to. Belief that it's important for non-Christians to come to Christ, 
Churches that are growing have a strong showing on this. Churches that are shrinking don't. So is this our conviction? Is Christianity just our culture, our thing, our British whatever? Or is it a deep eternal truth that we're given, made custodians of, to share with those around us? Reading the Bible regularly, again, we can see in churches that grew um, a very strong showing of ministers reading the Bible daily, um, laity, not enough but still better, um, reading the Bible at least once a week, compared with shockingly low figures in declining churches, 19%, 26%. So we have the word of God in our language. And if you know anything about church history, you'll know that people like William Tyndale died so that we could have that. What's it worth to us? Belief in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, a very strong showing of clergy and laity who believe this in growing churches compared with a much smaller showing in those that don't. So do we hold to this? And then lastly, if we can again get this thing to work. Yep. Belief that God answers prayer, whether or not it's with instant miracles. Sometimes what changes when God answers prayer is not the circumstance, but our ability to go through a circumstance. But we know that sometimes God does work miracles as well. And so belief that God answers prayer, do we believe that? Because that's a strong factor as well. And so there are other factors that this study brought out as well, um, embracing different styles of worship and different stuff like that. But it's these figures we've just been through together that are a bit more fundamental. The survey said those with a consistent unified message are attractive to outsiders. Because in a world that's eroded the concept of absolute truth so much as to almost do away with it altogether. The only result in the end for people who are searching is to make certainty more attractive. And that's why we have got to be sure and convinced about our gospel convictions and our conviction of the need to grow in the knowledge of God through his word. Because people need a church that can show them and teach them that what the risen and ascended Jesus has done can make a difference to them. And so for all of this, for all of this, we need to be equipped, don't we? And this morning we looked at some of what equipping means, an image of coaching and teaching and sporting images, but there's a little bit more to it as well that I want to draw out just for a moment. The image in the Greek here carries more than just being taught a skill, the um, the bricklayer learning to lay bricks, the woodworker working wood, those of us who work in offices grappling with Microsoft Office in all of its glory. Um, The images of a surgeon setting a bone. We're being spiritually repaired all the time. Not for nothing did Augustine describe the church as a hospital for souls. If you're a fan of the band Switchfoot, you may remember a song that they did a few years ago called Beautiful Letdown, in which the singer 
praises the ultimate emptiness of this world because that revelation leads him to Christ. And he sings this, and I hope these words are going to make sense in a minute. We are a beautiful letdown, painfully uncool, the church of the dropouts, the losers, the sinners and failures and fools. Whilst in a physical sense these words may not fit where all our lives were when we became children and servants of the gospel, we're a diverse body of people here this evening and um, we come to Christ from all kinds of walks of life. Some came to Christ in a time of great darkness. I've shared before my cousin is married to a vicar who became a Christian whilst doing time in prison for armed robbery. It doesn't get much darker than that, so you never know what God's going to do. Some of us were just brought up to the faith until the day that it became our own. Some of us just came to it at, at at some point as the Spirit nudged us through our lives. But the truth is, isn't it, that for all that, these words fit us all because we're all fallen and marred by sin. And so in that sense, these words are true of us all. And so the context of equipping here is that we're being helped to grow. Grow in sanctification, the growth in the repair from sin that Christ has birthed in us, and also repaired from error. By growing in the knowledge of the truth, which in turn helps mature us to minister to the body in whichever way we're called and skilled to. And so, as Paul goes on to tell us here, we had the apostles who founded the church, the fathers who defended and defined doctrine against heresy and error, and many of the creeds we say in church were written in response to heresies that were threatening to take people away from the truth. And today we have ministers teachers and leaders in many different contexts who stand on their shoulders to lead us and instruct us and equip us, as well as Bibles that we should treasure and use and the precious gift of prayer. And the fruit of all of this now and through the ages is us growing and serving. And the unity of faith that we need to come to in all this is more than just us as Holy Trinity, important as that is, the C of E, or even churches working and fellowshipping together across denominational categories. The Greek word for faith is very much a doing word, being persuaded of divine truth, chasing after it, letting it motivate what we want to be as people, as churches, as the church in the wider sense. That's the unity of faith, whatever denomination we are. And as we begin to conclude, this will manifest itself in the qualities that Paul has outlined for us and that we've considered together. But the final and greatest way that Paul leaves us to minister to the body is that in response to all the falsehood that's out there about God and about ourselves, we speak the truth in love. John Piper helpfully notes for us that whether or not we're teachers in any formal sense, all of us in some relational or instructional context will teach. And so if we lead a study in any context, home group, students, whatever it may be, if we come alongside someone who needs it with gospel comfort, 
If we share Jesus with anyone, we speak truth in love. And we're helping to equip disciples who then equip others in their turn. In the final session of the Everybody Welcome course, we're going to be looking very specifically at the things that help us with all this. Help us to be what the book describes, um, helps us to be a sticky church, that is, a church with good glue to improvise people and to integrate people, sorry, and make them into disciples. And we can think here, can't we, about some of the structures we have in our church that both teach and pastorally support people, home groups, students, 20s and 30s, new beginnings, holiday club, the list goes on. The course book gives us some interesting and valuable case studies which are worth your taking time to look at ahead of the next session in two weeks' time as to why people did or didn't stay in particular churches and highlights for us crucial roles that things like getting people involved, visiting, befriending, and other forms of good follow-up can play. Good follow-up is very often highlighted as a, as a thing that churches aren't particularly good at. We're good at events, not so good at following up from them. Um, the course has been enlightening, I think. So next, in, let's in concluding it in a couple of weeks' time, think about what it can offer us in terms of transmitting the discipleship that's implicit wherever we serve. And so in expounding the greatness of salvation to us, calling us to live and walk worthy of it with lowliness, gentleness and long-suffering, in the unity of all that the Spirit does in sealing us in the truth, helping us understand it and live it, bonded by the peace with God that gives us peace with each other. We, as parts of Christ's body on earth, grow in maturity and conviction and truth through the knowledge of God's word and impart that truth to one another and to the world around us. As Paul says, one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism and one truth spoken in love.